Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. Okay. Um, those of you who have Bibles here, uh, or if you read your Bible on your smartphone or something, then let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. just want to read you um, a well-known portion called uh, Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. Uh, I'm going to be reading Matthew 6 from verse 5 to about verse 13. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men, I tell you. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen, and your Father who sees in what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our, our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Well-known portion of scripture. Uh, I actually started preaching on it a couple of weeks ago in, in the morning service. So um, if you want to catch the first um, installment, go and download the podcast and... Uh, but even if, if you didn't hear that, you'll, you'll understand this evening. Um, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer, the so-called Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray. Um, and notice he says in verse 9, this then is how you ought to pray. Or pray in this way. In other words, look at what he says. He doesn't say pray these words. He says pray in this way. In other words, this is not just a little rhyme that we're supposed to recite. When he says pray in this way, he's giving us a model of how to pray. And actually, each phrase in the prayer is like a topical heading and description that in prayer we can, we can fill in. So, if you, you know, praying in the morning, you know, one thing that I, just try it tomorrow morning if you've not done it before. Pray the Our Father, but don't don't just recite it as a little rhyme. Take each phrase of the prayer as a heading, a topical heading that you can pray through. So, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's worship. And then you worship God. Your kingdom come, intercession. And then you pray for God's kingdom to come in people's lives. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's consecration. Lord, let your will be done in my life. Let your will be done in our world. Give us this day our daily bread. That's petition. Asking for your needs. Bring your needs for the Lord. Lord, these are my needs. That's where you finally come with your shopping list and say, God, <laughs> this is what I need. Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. That's confession. That's where you confess your sins. Um, and um, that's also where you forgive others where they've sinned against you. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. Um, so in other words, you're saying, 
God, forgive me my sins to the extent that I forgive others that have sinned against me. That's literally what, that's how you're supposed to ask for forgiveness. <laughs> and lead us not into temptation. You're asking for protection, uh, for, 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 for guidance. God, um, uh, lead me in the right way. But deliver us from the evil one, uh, protection and deliverance. So if, you see it, uh, if we see it as a prayer of topical headings, I can guarantee, uh, I, I can guarantee you if you pray that prayer uh, sincerely and pray it in that way and see it as topical headings and pray under each heading you know, what the heading stands for, you, you're not going to not get done in five or ten minutes. Some of you think, oh, you know, praying for ten minutes, I mean, how on earth does one pray for ten minutes on end, you know? Just try it. I can guarantee you, uh, without even trying, you'll pray for, for quite a while. Um, so, you know, that's how the Lord teaches us to pray. And to, tonight, we're going to focus on the first two lines, Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be your name. And when, when we taught my, my son, Justin, to pray, I think he was three, four years old, and sort of just learning how to pray, um, that was the one word in the prayer that we actually changed, the word hallowed. <laughs> So we, we taught him to pray because, I mean, explaining to a four-year-old what hallowed means is a bit difficult. I'm going to try and explain it to you because I see you, you're a bit more than four years old. Um, but we just said, our Father in heaven, let your name be praised. <laughs> that was a bit easier. Um, but it's interesting, even though we changed the word, and the word hallowed is an old English word. I mean, it's not, it's not a w- word you hear in everyday conversation, Right? It's interesting to know that almost all the modern translations still keep that word. Even the most modern translations, you go and check them, Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be your name. (laughs) And the reason for that is we don't really have a modern equivalent for it. We don't really have a modern equivalent for the word um, hallowed. So so what what does it mean when we say hallowed be your name? Um, Let me just read a few scriptures in the Old Testament uh, a clue when you reading Jesus, he was so saturated in the Old Testament that when he preached, it's just Old Testament scripture that's coming out. And if you know where to look in the Old Testament, you're going to see what he's talking about. So I'm just going to show you one or two places where he's uh, talking about, or, or that that is actually alluding to and referring to in the Old Testament. The first one, you can just write down if you're taking notes, um, Ezekiel 36, verse 22 to 23. And it says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, um, God says to, to Ezekiel the prophet, This is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things. The deliverance, you know, getting them back from captivity. It's not for your sake that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone when I sent you into exile. I sent you into exile as punishment for your sin, and then when you got to, to the nations where I sent you, you profaned my name. And he says in verse 23, And I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. 
says, you know, I sent you to the nations, you're in exile, but, um, you know, you've gone from bad to worse, you know, amongst the nations, you've just profaned my name. And profane means, um, is the opposite. Prof- profane, something that's profane is the opposite of something that's sacred. Something that's sacred is special. It's holy, it's, it, we, we struggle to sort of really find a sense as modern people of the word sacred because we don't really have a concept of what it is. People in Jesus' time and people in Ezekiel's time, they still had a concept of what sacred is. But we've watched so many movies where God's name is taken in vain. We've watched so many movies and, and programs where um, sacred, special things are made fun of and degraded and mocked that we, we don't really have much of a sense of the sacred anymore. Something that, that something is actually special. Now, holy, in other words, sacred, is the opposite of profane. It's the opposite of mocking and degrading and, and considering something lightly, but considering something to be very special. The word holy also means sort of separate. Uh, and when it's used of God especially, the word holy means that He's different. He's different from everything else. There's nothing else that's quite like Him. And, and if you think about that, um, sometimes, ex- excuse me for being a little bit of a theologian here for a moment, uh, you know, in, in theology they, they say that God is categorically different from everything else. In, in, when we describe things, we have certain categories, okay? Like, for instance, chairs and tables and benches and stuff are furniture. That's a category. And, and, and all those different pieces of furniture all fit into that one category. Um, dogs and cats and dolphins and stuff are mammals. That's a category in which they fit. So there are different things in the same category, and they are alike in certain ways. Well, in the category of God, there's just one thing, and that's God. (laughs) He's categorically different from everything else. There's nothing else that shares a category with Him. Everything else was created by Him. He's the only thing that was not created. So He's categorically different, and that's what holy means. It means we consider God to be different and therefore uniquely special. More special than everything else. So when we say, hallowed be your name, we're saying, God, you are our ultimate concern. You are our ultimate, the ultimate thing we want and trust. You are the ultimate thing that we worship and look to. We revere you. That's what hallowed also means. We revere you. Um, let, me, let me read another scripture which uh, might make the... And, and just... By the way, I don't want to say too much about this, but those of you who want to go a bit deeper into the Our Father, it's, it's what's called a New Exodus prayer. Um, every line in the, in the, in the, in, in, in the prayer um, takes the model of the Exodus, Israel coming out of Egypt to the Promised Land, and there's, there are all these prophecies in Ezekiel and Isaiah and so on about Israel going in, uh, once they've gone into exile, there'll be a new Exodus. But the new Exodus starts with a voice crying out in the wilderness, saying, prepare the way of the Lord. 
which is John the Baptist. So the real new Exodus only starts with Jesus. And, and all, all of the whole prayer is modeled on, on this whole Exodus theme. So those of you who want to go and do deeper study, you can, you can just check that out for yourselves. Here I just want to read you Isaiah um, 29, verse 23. Listen to this one. This is a powerful one. And it says, When they see among them their children the work of my hands, they will keep my name holy. They will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. So he's saying the same thing in, in three different ways so that we can see. He said they, they will keep or honor my name as holy. They will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Israel and they will stand in awe of the God of Israel. So can you, are you starting to form a sense of what hallowed be your name means? God's name represents God himself. So when he talks about his name being hallowed, it's, it's, it's God being hallowed. So when we say, uh, blessed be the name of the Lord, we mean blessed be God. So when we say hallowed be your name, he's saying, God, let your name not be profane, but be, you know, different and special and sacred. And let us stand in awe of your name and let us worship your holy name. Let us consider you different and greater than anything else. Let, in other words, you are our greatest concern. You are our greatest treasure. You are our God. You are the one at the center of our lives. That's what hallowed be your name uh, means. And it means to revere, to make holy or ultimate. To make it your ultimate concern ultimate thing you want and trust. So I'm just going to look at this, uh, these, this line, um, these two lines actually, just under three headings. I want to show you that worship is inevitable, that worship is primary, and that worship is mediated. And I'm going to explain that in a moment. Firstly, worship is inevitable. Praise and worship is not only inevitable for Christians, but it's inevitable for anyone. You see, if God is not at the center of your life, then something else is. If God is not hallowed in your life, then something else is. If God is not your ultimate concern, then something else is, or someone else for that matter. So it's impossible not to worship. So it's not like religious people worship and other you know, irreligious people don't. Everyone worships. Everyone doesn't worship the same thing. Everyone doesn't worship the same God. But everyone has an ultimate concern, an ultimate treasure, a center of gravity around which their lives orbit. Anton was preaching this morning and he had such a nice picture up of the sun and then the earth orbiting around the sun and the moon orbiting around the earth. <clears throat> and we know from history that um, in the time of Galileo, a couple of hundred of, ye uh, of years ago, uh, the scientists had been saying for hundreds of years that the earth was the center of the universe. It's called geocentrism. And, and this was established um, scientific theory, you know. There was consensus in the scientific world about this at that stage. Um, and the church, <clears throat> you know, said, well, uh, the scientists are clever people. They must be right. So we'll go with what the scientists say. So they looked for scriptures that they could interpret to say that the earth was the center of the universe. And they even said, well, this is the Roman Catholic uh, Church of the, of the time. They even said, listen, it's heretical to say that the earth is not the center of the universe. <laughs> um, 
Actually, the Bible doesn't say that the earth is the center of the universe, if you, if you read it correctly. But, but the church was saying that at the time. And Galileo and some other stargazers, that, you know, they looked up into the heavens and they saw the movements you know, with their telescopes and so on of the stars, and it just didn't make sense. If the earth was the center of the universe, the, <laughs> the, the, the stars weren't moving in straight lines. They were moving all over the place in ways that they weren't supposed to move if the earth was the center of the universe. And they were looking at this and they were totally confused. And you know, there are so many people who have themselves as the center of the universe. And they look at the movement, movements happening in their lives, and they're just confused because it doesn't make sense. And they can't understand why. Why doesn't it make sense? Why is everything moving in the wrong ways? Why are all the wrong things happening? They, they're not happening as they should. And Galileo uh, said, you know, he figured it out and he said, no, the problem is we've chosen the wrong center. The earth is not the center of the galaxy. The sun is. And when you make the sun the center of the galaxy, all of a sudden the movement of the stars make perfect sense. You can predict them. Whereas with the earth as the center... Yeah, they had very complicated sort of formulas to try and predict the movements of the star. And they got it sort of right, but never completely right. When we say, hallowed be your name, we are moving the center of our galaxy from planet Earth to the sun. From ourselves to God. And all of a sudden, everything starts to make sense. Because we realize it, the universe doesn't revolve around us. We're not the center of the universe. We might have been the center of our universe until that time, but we are not really the center of the universe. Um, so, uh, you know, if, if God is not the center of your life, then something else is. If God is not your ultimate concern, then something else is. And we only pray consistently when our ultimate concern is at stake or to please our ultimate concern, or to receive our ultimate concern. Now, uh, let me just illustrate this, and, and why I say that it, worship is inevitable not just for Christians, but for, for everyone. There are two groups that we read about in the beginning of that section, the hypocrites and the pagans, and, and both of them, Jesus says, don't be like them, don't pray like them. Okay, now, the hypocrites... What's their ultimate concern? If you want to know what their ultimate concern is, just look when they pray. It says, they love praying, standing in the synagogue and on the street corners, to be seen by other people. What is their ultimate concern? What is at the center of their universe? What is their greatest desire? The acclaim of man. The praise of man. And what's the result? They only pray when other people see They only pray when other people are looking. They never pray in secret behind closed doors. They never worship in secret. Because actually God is not what they hallow. They hallow something else. They worship something else. They revere something else. Something else is at the center of their universe. Uh, the pagans, they pray primarily to get answers to prayer. So what does that tell you about what the center of their universe is? They don't hallow God. They hallow themselves and their needs. What's at the center of the universe? My needs. What I need. 
and I'm going to uh, pray and use lots of words and whatever I can so that God will answer it. Because ultimately, answered prayer is what I want. I don't, I don't pray uh, because I hallow God and I revere God and I worship God. God is just a means to an end. And that end is to meet my needs. So ultimately, God is not at the center of their universe either. And when are they going to pray? Because they are at the center of the universe when they are threatened or when they, need, when they have needs, then they'll pray. In other words, <clears throat> if God is your main concern, you'll pray all the time. But if a claim is your, uh, is, is your main concern, you'll only pray when others are watching, when you're seen by others. And if uh, you are your main concern, you'll only pray when you are in danger or in need. <clears throat> So, uh, a guy called William Temple, um, I think he was a bishop, Bishop William Temple, Anglican bishop, we're in an Anglican church building, uh, he was an Anglican bishop, he said, your true worship is what you do when you, with your solitude, your true worship is what you do when no one's watching. So in other words, the thing you truly worship is revealed by what you think and do in secret and in solitude when no one else is, is watching. Um, so let me ask you a question, and this is a question that convicts me a bit, actually quite a bit. What do you think about when you don't have to think about anything? What do you think about when you don't have to think about anything? Do you think about business success? Climbing, climbing the corporate ladder, getting that 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 new position, you know, with a new salary, and do you think about um, romance, your love life, getting that guy or that girl, you know, that you have your eye on? Do you think about um, people praising you and saying, wow, you know, Henny, you know, you're really a great preacher, and, you know, or do you think about, what do you think about? Whatever you think about when you don't have to think about anything gives you a good indication of what you hallow, what you revere, what you actually worship. If the thing you are truly, that you truly worship is not God, you'll only pray when that thing is threatened, when that thing is at stake. And the surest sign that, you truly, that God is truly your Father and that God is truly your greatest treasure is that you regularly worship in secret when no one else is watching. You see, a lot of other things that we do in church, we can do for ulterior motives. I'm, I'm, I know that there are people, even probably people in our churches, that come to church just because they want fellowship and because you're such a bunch of great people and they want to be friends with you. And they don't maybe have friends or family and they, and they come because, you know, you're great. And... and you know, for, to some extent, it's okay to want friends and to come for that. But if that's the only reason you come to church, my, my point is, you can't say, well, I go to church regularly. You might be going to church regularly just because you really enjoy it, because there are great people, nice people who love you in church. Um, you know, anything else, basically, that you do in public, you could do with ulterior motives. But why would you worship when no one is watching? 
What practical benefit is there? No one sees it. It's not like you're doing planning, you know, and you're sort of preparing for the future. The only possible reason is if God is your treasure and you really hallow Him. Secondly, so we said worship is inevitable. Worship is primary. And what I mean that with that is worship comes first. Or, as Jesus is teaching, worship should come first. And worship should not only f- come first in our prayers, worship should come first in our lives. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. Worship should be primary in our prayers and in our lives. <clears throat> Note that Jesus, when He teaches on worship, He doesn't say, Our Father, praying this way, Our Father in heaven, please give me everything I need. Please give me my daily bread. He doesn't teach us to pray, Our Father in heaven, um, Lord, I know I'm such a sinner. I've sinned against you and I feel so guilty and I'm not worthy to come into your presence. Please forgive me and have mercy on me. He says, when you pray, don't first confess your sins. Because unlike us, God doesn't have an issue with our sins when we come into His presence. Not primarily. It's not like He's ignoring our sins. The time for confessing them will come. But it's not first. Just like, you know, when um, I come home in the evenings and my children, uh, Ethan and, uh, and, and Justin and Kirsten, when they, want to, when they run to me and they want to sit on my lap, I don't say, ah, ah, hang on, easy, easy, slow down, stand in a line here. First tell me, how good have you been? Have you been good enough to deserve to come and sit on my lap? I'm going to call your mother in as an expert witness, and then I'm going to cross-examine, and I'm going to make sure... No, I don't. <laughs> I don't care whether they've been good or naughty. I'm their dad. They're my children. They can come sit on my lap. Why do we think God is different? Why do we think God keeps that little star chart, you know? Where every time you've been good, you get a star, and every time you've been naughty, you get like a black mark. And then he first goes and checks. Let me see. Do, your, do you have more stars than black marks? Uh-uh. Sorry, you can't come into my presence today. This week, you've been naughty. God is not Santa Claus. I mean, I know this is like deep revelation for some of you. (laughs) God is not Santa Claus, you know. It's not like you only get a present when you've been a good boy or a good girl. God is not a moralist. He's a father. He's a father. And that's why worship is primary. Worship comes first. And, and worship is not only first chronologically in the prayer, but it's also first theologically. There are reasons why worship comes first. In fact, let's take petition, give us this day our daily bread, and confession, forgive us our sins. And let's just compare them. And, and, and I want to show you that without the right worship, your petition and your confession will be wrong in any case. It will be wrong. It will be skewed. It will be distorted. Um, worship, let, let's put it this way. Petition is about how we relate to the world. 
Give us our daily bread. Give us the stuff in the world that we need. Okay? Confession is how we relate to ourselves. Okay? So what I'm saying and what I think Jesus is teaching is that worship, which is our relationship with God, will determine whether our relationship with the world, petition, and our relationship with ourselves, confession is right or wrong. Um, let's, let's put it this way. If I allow anything more than God, I'll... I'll have serious problems in my petition and confession. So when, I say, when we say, give us our daily bread, we're saying we have needs. But what we hallow, what we worship, will determine what we think we need. Because daily bread is like daily necessities. It's like, it's like God, God says, give us a, we must pray, give us our daily bread, not give us our daily pudding. <laughs> give us our daily... Coffee. <laughs> uh, some of you, like me, you know, coffee is like a necessity, a daily. <laughs> some of you will give up your bread for, your, for a cup of coffee. You know, so, so daily bread, when you say give us our daily bread, we're talking about give me my daily necessities. You're asking for your daily necessities. But what you hallow, what you worship will determine what you think your daily necessities are. If you worship success, then all your prayers and everything you ask is going to be focused on your job. What you do. Because that, to you, is something that you think you cannot live without. Because that's what you hallow. If you hallow your family, or you hallow your, your, um, your body, or you hallow your, your romantic life, then... What you petition, what you ask for, what you consider daily bread, and what you ask for as daily bread is going to be focused on those things. Whatever you place at the center, that's what you're going to say, I cannot live without that. That's what I need. When I ask for daily bread, that's what I'm asking for, and that's what I'm going to focus on. So what we ask for tells us a lot about what we hallow, what we worship, what we truly uh, worship. Um... When we say forgive us our sins, we, we, we're basically saying we have sins. <laughs> but here's the thing. Whatever we worship, whatever is our God basically, whatever we most want to please, we'll only feel that we've really sinned and we'll only really repent if we feel we'll, we've failed that thing. So how we define sin is dependent on what our God is, what we hallow, what we worship. And if we hallow and worship the wrong things, then there are a lot of things we're not going to repent about. Because we're only going to repent about those things that we feel offend that which we worship, that which is at the center of our lives, our center of our gravity, which is, that, which is our God. Anything that offends our God, that we'll repent of. But what doesn't offend our God, not so important. Not really going to repent of that. Can you see that even your repentance is dependent on what you worship. If you worship the true God, the Father, you'll repent of everything you need to repent of. If you don't, if you worship anything else, you won't repent of many things that you need to repent of. You'll repent of some things, but not everything. Okay, so <clears throat> that's why A.W. Tozer said, whatever comes to a man's mind when he thinks about God, 
whatever comes into a man's mind when he thinks about God is the most important thing about that man. Whatever comes into your mind when you think about God, that's the most important thing about you because that determines everything else in your life. Everything else flows out of that. In other words, the most important thing about your life is what you worship, what you hallow. Can you start to see now why hallowed be your name is first, why worship is first in the prayer? Because everything else depends on it. Worship of the Father will heal your view of the world and of yourself. It will bring your life into right focus. You cannot see yourself or your world correctly unless you see your Father correctly. And, and He occupies the right place, um, the primary place in your life. Um, if you do worship well, you'll do petition and confession well. You'll repent well and you'll ask for the right things. If you relate to God well, then you'll relate to yourself and your world well as well. And here's, <clears throat> here's a big one. One of the main reasons why worship must be primary in your life. Worshipping the Father allows you to see your world and to see yourself as you really are and not lose heart. Because, here's the thing, <clears throat> if God is not at the center of your life, if God is not the one that you hallow and worship, then there's either something in your world or in yourself that you worship and hallow. And then you cannot afford... <laughs> If your God is in your world, and your God is, then, then you cannot look at your world and see wrong. You cannot handle the wrong in the world. Because there's something in that world that you see as God, that you hallow, that you worship, that you are so dependent on that it cannot fail. You cannot afford for it to fail. Or if what you hallow and worship is inside yourself, then you cannot look at yourself and, I mean, you can, you can tolerate some mistakes, but you cannot handle all the sins that are there. Because... There's something that you worship. There's something that's the center of your universe. And if that center doesn't hold, then your life is going to fall apart. So you're going to have to justify yourself. When you see certain sins, you're going to have to sweep them under the rug and blame other people for them. And in some way, weasel out of the fact that you are a sinner. Because you cannot afford, because you hallow yourself, because you are your primary concern, because you are so dependent on yourself, and, and your very identity is based on something in you, primarily. You, you cannot afford to have that sin, or that much sin in your life. So worshipping the Father, who's not in this world, and not, who's, who's, who can I say, transcends this world, and transcends you, is the only way, only thing that allows you to be able to look at this world, and look at yourself, and not lose heart. Because there's something outside of my world. There's something outside of me that I can depend on. That's not as volatile as I am. And even when my world falls apart and there's evil in my world, and even when I fall apart and there's evil in me, it's okay. I don't like it. I'm going to repent of it. But I can handle it. I won't lose heart. I won't completely fall apart because there's something above me. There's something above my world on which I can still depend. There's an anchor. Okay, so and then finally, worship is mediated. <clears throat> and I want to share a little bit that I brought a prop and now I forgot it. 
Let me grab something here. Pretend this. Pretend this is a pendulum. <clears throat> okay? Worship works like a pendulum. That first line of the prayer, Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. He's our Father and He loves us. He's close to us. He's accessible to us. He cares about us. But He's in heaven. He's above us. He's so much greater than us. He's so much wiser than us. He's so much more holy than us. But He's our Father and He still loves us. Despite the fact that He's so great. But He's in heaven. He's so great He can do anything. If He's only our Father and He loves us, but He's not in heaven and He's powerful enough to do, then, then He might want to answer our prayers, but He, could, but he can't. But if He's only in heaven and He's so great and powerful and so far above us, He might be able to answer our prayers, but He might not want to. But if he's our father in heaven, then he both can answer our prayers and actually wants to answer our prayers. Now, a normal pendulum, it swings, the high it swings, I mean, if it, it can swing low, and, and, and if it swings low to the one side, it'll swing pretty low to the other side. But if it swings higher on the one side, it'll swing higher on the other side. The greater revelation you, you have of God as our father, the greater revelation you'll have, or the more it'll mean that he's also in heaven, so far above us. And the greater revelation you have of the fact that He's in heaven and so far above us, so far beyond us, the more it will mean to you that He's actually our Father and He actually loves us. But a normal pendulum, as it swings like this, if you hold your hand still, eventually gravity will take its toll. And it will swing less and less and less. And eventually stop. But in our worship... We don't say, let us hallow your name. It's in the passive voice. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed by who? Did you pick up in Ezekiel 36 when I read that? What did it say? I. It's a divine passive. I will cause my name to be hallowed. In other words, God is saying in this pendulum of worship, which the higher it swings to the one end, the higher it will swing to the other end, there's a divine hand swinging you higher and higher until your worship goes out of control. <laughs> your pendulum <laughs> just goes way out of control. <clears throat> God must be hallowed in our lives. God must be worshipped. If we don't worship God, if we don't have Him as the center of our universe as the center of gravity in our lives. The center will, any other center will not hold. We need God as the center. And if God is not at the center, something else will be, and it will fall apart. But if we have to, a few verses later, pray, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins, and we have to pray that every day. We know this is a daily prayer because we're taught to pray, give us our daily bread. And if we have to ask for our daily bread, then we have to ask for daily forgiveness. It gives us an idea of how sinful we are. How on earth can we have God as our Father then? And I shared this um, in Randburg as well, but I want to share it again and just add to it. Many people say, no, that 
calling the Our Father the Lord's Prayer is actually a misnomer. It, it can't be the Lord's Prayer because the Lord couldn't have prayed it. Jesus, the Lord Jesus couldn't have prayed it because He has no sin. So He can't pray, forgive us our sins or forgive us our debts because He has no sins to confess. But that misses the point. You see, when you pray the Our Father, you don't say, forgive me my sins. You don't say, my Father in heaven, give me my daily bread, forgive me my sins. You say, our Father in heaven, forgive us our sins. Jesus might not have any sins to repent of. But Jesus is willing to so closely identify with us that He will confess our sins in His prayers. So Jesus couldn't say, forgive me my sins, because He doesn't have any sins. But He can pray, forgive us our sins, on behalf of us. And what is Jesus doing in heaven right now? Interceding for us. Doing just that. It is the Lord's Prayer. And in fact, like I said in Randberg, the only way we can pray our Father is if Jesus is included in the hour. Because He's Jesus' Father that He shares with us. That's the only way we can pray our Father is if Jesus is included in the hour. If Jesus is not included in the hour, Father, we have no right to say our Father. You see, Jesus always referred to God as His Father in the Gospels, throughout the Gospels. Uh, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, you can go and read later on in Matthew's Gospel. He says, Father, if it's at all possible, let this bitter cup pass me by, but yet not my will, but your will be done. Sound familiar? <laughs> even when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, faced with this cup of wrath, the wrath of Almighty God, he says, Father, if at all possible, let this cup pass me by. But when he actually drinks the cup of that wrath, when he's actually hanging there on the cross, dying on the cross, what does he say? He doesn't say, my Father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As far as I know, that's the only place in the Gospels where Jesus refers to the Father as God and not Father. In other words, He referred to God as, to, to His Father as God so that we can refer to Him as our Father. He was rejected and then said, Why have you forsaken me? So that we would not only not be forsaken, but actually accepted. But there's more. I just want to read you, <coughs> I'm almost done, I just want to read you uh, two more scriptures. And the first one is in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17 says, let me just read verse 16, just for context. It says, do, not know, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, for it is written, the two will become one flesh. And that's referring to Genesis 2. But then listen to this in verse 17. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. When Rochelle married me, at that very moment, on that very day, my father became her father. My family became her family. And, and 
That's why we can say our Father. Because in a sense, we married Jesus. We got into a marriage-like covenant with Him where His Father became our Father. But not in the physical way. When you marry someone physically, there's sexual intercourse, the marriage is consummated, uh, there's blood, uh, you know, the blood of the covenant, which is physical, and it's all physical. It's, it's a physical union, and you become one flesh. With Jesus, it's different. You don't become one flesh with Him, you become one spirit with Him. When we receive the Holy Spirit, and remember Romans 8 verse 15? The Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption by whom we cried, Abba, Father. We cannot pray our Father without the Holy Spirit. It's when we receive the Holy Spirit, when we're born of the Spirit, that's when Jesus' Father becomes our Father because we're in covenant with Him. Then I just want to read you one more thing. <clears throat> one more verse in John chapter 17. But I just want Nadia to just quickly come and, and just uh, bring the key one and just quickly explain to us what you have there. Um, so in intercession before the service, um, we, were, we were praying and just trusting God for, for pictures and um, the Lord actually um, showed me this this picture of a key, and um, some of the other um, people that were in intercession, Philip, um, was saying that he saw a picture of a of a tree, and it only had flowers, and um, people were f- experiencing frustration. He felt because they weren't bearing any fruit, and um, I saw that you know out of heaven, just like Annie was saying, we pray, Our Father. Um, let it be here on earth as it is in heaven. And I saw God releasing keys um, from heaven. And I felt specifically God saying that these keys are for breakthrough in specific areas. But, you know, these keys only came from a place of intimacy with the Lord. Those fruit only came from a place of intimacy with Him. Um, so, yes, I saw this. And I really believe that the Lord was, was saying um, to the church and to His bride, He really wants to release breakthrough. And um, He really wants to give us keys for the things that um, we need breakthrough for in our lives. So. Amen. So I, I agree with that. And why I asked Nadia to share that is, I believe that Nadia and then prophetically picked up that there are people here who need certain keys that will give them breakthrough. And what I want to submit to you is that what I'm sharing with you now, who you hallow, who you worship, your relationship with the Father, that is the master key that unlocks everything else. Because not only are we, by having the Holy Spirit and being one spirit with the Lord, one with Him, in covenant with Him, so that we can call His Father, our Father, the Holy Spirit crying out, Abba, Father, in our hearts. But when that happens, John 17, verse 23 says, I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity and let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. When that happens, when you want spirit with the Lord, when the Lord through His Spirit lives inside of you, when you're in covenant with the Lord, when His Father is our Father, then we must understand 
that his father loves us as much as he loves him. Now that, that is so amazing that it's hard for us to accept. Because I mean, we can accept. We're so used to conditional love, you know, earning love. If you do well, if, you, if, you, if you're a good boy or a good girl, then, you know, you're going to be rewarded with love and acceptance and favor. So conditioned that when we look at Jesus and his perfect life, we have no problem believing that the Father loves him amazingly. I mean, he's Jesus for crying out loud. He never sinned. He never had any evil thought cross his mind. He had temptation, just like us, but he never fell for that temptation, unlike us. Don't look at me with big eyes. I know, I know you're just like me. You've fallen for those temptations. Jesus didn't. So we have no problem believing that the Father loves Jesus. But not only that, not only is he perfect, sinless, completely obedient to the Father, never letting the Father down, but I mean... He's willing to sacrifice his life, die in the most painful, excruciating, humiliating way imaginable, naked on a cross for a bunch of sinners like us who don't deserve it. I mean, how heroic, how amazing. He, he knew in the Garden of Gethsemane, his sweat became like blood because he knew the torment, the hell, literally, that he was going to go through. And yet he said, not my will, but your will be done. We can understand that the Father loves him. I mean, who wouldn't? But then we look at ourselves and we say, but what? You trying to tell me, any that the Father loves me as much as he loves Jesus? Really? And we find that hard to believe. We honestly do. And the reason we find it hard to believe is because we don't understand covenant the way that God does if we are one spirit with the Lord if we are in covenant with Jesus if we are metaphorically married to him then not only does his father become our father but his father sees us the way that he sees him the father sees us the way that he sees Jesus because we're in Christ and whatever is true of Christ becomes true of us, legally. And the Father loves us because Jesus loves us. One day when my daughter Kirsten gets married, I might talk tough beforehand and sort of have a shotgun, you know. <laughs> what are your intentions with my daughter, you know. But I'm telling you, if Kirsten loves that man, the best thing I can do for her is to love that man as much as she loves him. That's what the Father does with us. He says, my son Jesus, you really love this bride that much? Well, then I love her as much. Because she's in covenant with you. You're one spirit in the Lord. So, that affects everything else. Until we can pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we cannot pray the rest of the prayer properly. We cannot live the Christian life properly. Worship is primary. It comes first. And it's mediated by Jesus, the bridegroom. So, what I want us to do now is I just want you to close your eyes and this key, the master key and all the other you know, keys that go along with it, it's available to us.
but I, I, I really hope that this key is going to unlock something in, in our hearts where we can pray, where we can ask with so much more confidence because we know we're asking to glorify God's name. We're asking for that which will ultimately glorify God. Where we can repent so much more effectively because we're not really sorry, so much sorry that we broke God's law as we are sorry that we broke His heart because we love Him, because we hallow Him, because we worship Him. Then, if, if this is in place, then everything else will fall into place. Even when it seems to be falling apart, it will really be falling in place. Father, we just want to come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we want you to be the center of our universe, the cent our center of gravity, our ultimate concern, the one we hallow, revere, worship, value, place more worth on than any one or anything else come and take up the center of our being lord and if there's anything else competing for our hearts competing for our worship with you we pray that you'll reveal it now and set us free from those things that keep us captive in jesus name just stay in an attitude of of prayer and worship and just honestly ask god say lord please show me is there anything like that that I've placed at the center of my heart that doesn't belong there. And if there is, just bring it to the Lord and say, Father, deliver me from this thing that's causing me so much anxiety, so much distress, so much confusion, so much bondage. Set me free of it. Allow me to worship you and you alone. And as you do that, consider that if there's a sacrifice that you need to make in order to get rid of something that is at the center of your life, your sacrifice that God is calling you to make pales in comparison with the sacrifice He's already made in His Son, Jesus Christ. He will never ask you to sacrifice more than He's already sacrificed. Let that inspire you to sacrifice for Him. If he's at the center of your life, the center will hold. If he's the one you worship, yes, Father God, we, we just want to demote our jobs, demote ourselves, demote everything else that we're trusting in and worshiping to a secondary place in our lives. And want to say, you come first. You're the one we hallow. You're the one we revere. You're the one we worship. You're the one we're in orbit around. Be glorified. Be glorified in our lives. Let's stand. Father, I just want to pray, Lord, for each one of us, Lord, that we will be able to come into your presence with that boldness. Lord, I know that there are some of us here tonight, Lord, many of us maybe, who we just don't realize how much we are loved. And even as we are being told tonight, we find it hard to accept. We find it hard to believe. We find it hard to receive. But Lord, we pray that you'll melt our hearts. 
that you'll work inside of our hearts in such a way that we're able to receive it. That we'll realize that you love, your love for the unlovely doesn't say as much about us as it says about you. It says that you are such an amazing husband, such an amazing Lord, such an amazing friend, such an amazing father. Lord, and we pray that that will cause just such boldness and such worship to rise up within us all the time. And that when we are alone, what we think about when we have nothing else that we need to think about will be about you and about how good you've been to us and how amazing you are and that we'll worship you. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.jarberg.